Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And returning from the longest summer in human history, Joanna Robinson. Welcome back. Hello, Katie Rich. Hello. <laughs> <You're on up. laughs> uh, you were not just gone for the summer because it was a terrible news summer. Uh, you were on book leave. You are back. Anything to report from your time away in the podcast wilderness? I missed you guys. I genuinely <laughs> did. And I didn't know what was going on in the way that, like, I usually do. So I rely on you all to keep me informed. I mean, I was listening, but not being a part of it, not prepping for the podcast. Anyway, I'm thrilled to be back. Uh, it's nice to hear and see uh, you. And uh, it's nice to, you know, be connected with our listeners again. Well, you've come back in time to actually have new movies to talk about, which is both exciting and alarming. Um, Richard went to two different movie theaters, which is completely wild. And uh, Richard, I hope you can breathe from inside that hazmat suit that we have forced you into to connect via Zoom. Yeah, no, I'm, I am I think I'm just going to constantly wear a mask now, because if I can sit through two and a half hours of a Christopher Nolan movie fully masked, like I can do it. <laughs> I can do anything. Take that, anti-maskers. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk to Richard about the experience of seeing New Mutant and Tenet. Uh, we're all going to talk about Bill and Ted 3, which I watch from the comfort of my house, and Mulan, which you'll be able to watch from the comfort of your house this weekend. Uh, and then one more new movie coming out in your home. Uh, Charlie Kaufman's I Am Thinking of Ending Things debuts on Netflix this weekend, and we will be talking about both that and the book it's based on. Spoilers for that ahead, but we'll get there. So first of all, Richard, you wrote this really lovely piece about the experience of seeing New Mutants. I haven't read any other reviews of New Mutants, only yours. I imagine yours is the only one you need to read because it's less about what, by all accounts, is a not great movie and more about the weird experience of being in a theater. I, it seems like you would not recommend going to see New Mutants, even if you're the only one in the theater as you are. Yeah, I mean, I think that the circumstances of me seeing it are probably not recreatable <laughs> um, in that I returned to Boston, where I am where I am from, where I grew up and went to school and college and everything. And my parents don't live in Boston anymore. They moved about a year ago. So there was kind of a melancholy feeling to that. The weather was feeling very TIFF-like. It felt very Toronto weather. So that was kind of contributing to a weird mood. And then I went to this movie theater in downtown Boston that was like the big new theater that was built like right when I was finishing high school. 
I saw the first Spider-Man movie there, like with Tobey Maguire. And to go back and have it be completely empty, like really completely empty. I mean, I was the only one in this screening room until, you know, some kids barged in and sat in the back and talked the whole time. That was really strange. And then the movie itself is this weird, like ghost of an idea that was delayed and had problems during production and all this stuff. So there was just a a real combination of factors that added up to it being a very strange, sort of almost mournful way to return to movie going, even though I don't really feel like I'm back to movie going. I don't know that I'm going to be doing more of this. Yeah. I mean, when you go in there and you're like doing all the routine of being in a movie theater and like, you know, I think you said the concession stands weren't open and Mm -hmm. like you're the only person there. I feel like we've all fantasized about like when we get to go back to normal and do the things we love to do. But this made it sound like whatever it is that you do that you think will be normal again, it's not going to feel normal. There were so many stark reminders that it wasn't normal. I didn't feel like I was, you know, just sinking back into an old habit. It felt like I was pretending I was doing that, but also very cognizant of all the changes, you know, I think. um, And and I think, you know, granted this experience, they'll like, it'll catch up to the moment. But like, for now, you know, they were doing all the pre-roll stuff with like Maria Menounos, like talking about like what's coming up and little featurettes about upcoming features. And they were all spring movies whose dates were moved to most of them till next year or the fall. Um, And then the trailers were all for those same movies. Granted, a couple of them like Black Widow, had the new release dates. I think that's one in, that's in November, like kind of tagged on them at the end. But it really felt like I'd, you know, stumbled on an old amusement park and like flipped a switch and it just like, got, you know, sprang back into life like it had been 30 years ago. Like, or something. The, wow. like the end of AI. When it's like yeah. underwater amusement park. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. And then Jude Law was there like as a sex <laughs> robot. Like it was weird. Um, but, you know, so I, I don't, again, I don't think that that's going to be the case for everyone going back to movies, whether in the United States or elsewhere. Um, it, this just had a really strange, particular vibe to it. I would imagine that something like Tenet, which is opening in the U.S. this week, uh, it, where it can be open, that will draw crowds in a way that the New Mutants on a Sunday evening did not. Yeah. And then that's where we start getting nervous, right? That, like, it will draw crowds and people will be too close together and then people start getting sick. Well, that's the thing is I had real qualms about and I'm, you know, I'm going to file a tenant review as well. But and I had qualms about about doing that. And I wrote something to that effect last week and about like, what is the kind of moral responsibility, if any of my job right now, I don't want to advocate for people to, you know, endanger themselves and other people, especially theater workers. And yet I did do this thing. And I did go out into the world with a mask on and I had my temperature checked and everything. But it was empty. I mean, it was so empty. Like, again, there was like really only me in that in the New Mutant screening for most of it. And then when I went to see Tenet, which was a press screening on Monday, it was me and two other people in a huge, you know, uh, it's one of those th- theaters in Boston that they, where, they, you know, you get a, a meal served to you. Like, so the seats are big and wide and people were, you know, the two other people were sitting rows away from me. Everyone could have that experience of going back to the movies right now. Great. I would say have at it. Like, wear your mask. Make sure you're being diligent about things. But otherwise, like, there's nothing to really be nervous about. But that's not going to be true for people in places where people are reluctant to wear masks. They're going to be taking them off the minute the usher leaves the, the theater, you know, yeah. for and, and everyone's there crowded together to see Tenet, which is like a big anticipated movie. So I can't endorse the broader experience, though, if you are able to, I don't know, tenant back in time and have my experience that I had this weekend, <laughs> have at it. Nice use of the verb, uh, tenant. Um, 
something that I've been thinking about is, you know, there's been uh, increasing conversations about, like, over the years, right, about, like, uh, what value do film critics have anymore, really, blah, 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 which I don't agree with. But, you know, like, in the era when, like, our aggregated reviews or, like, people are just, you know, studios are using tweets from random fans instead of critics to promote their movies. But I was thinking about, like, now, weirdly, this idea of, like, is it worth it for me to go to the theater is a different question now and a question that you Richard can answer for for people at home like is it worth is it is a new mutants worth it the threshold of risk you know what I mean is tenant worth it that sort of stuff does that make any sense yeah no it I does mean, I, mean, the, I mean the irony of new mutants is I would say just wait and watch it on a plane but we're not doing that either so right. <laughs> I don't really know but um you know I will say I'm not going to spoil tenant don't worry anybody listening to this um but I will say that like I left that screening feeling rattled like because it's this long movie that's so loud and just enveloping and really subsuming I mean it really just kind of charges at you for two and a half hours and I I was kind of shaky and a little bit anxious and you know I was in an unfamiliar part of Boston for me and I just felt very like on edge but in a fun way like I hadn't felt that in Mm. a long time at least since March or February or whatever you know And so I can't be honest about that reaction and then say, no, watching a movie at home is the same thing, because it's really not. I mean, that was a it was a really stark reminder of that fact that there is a different, you know, more holistic experience to being in the dark and not looking at your phone and having this huge thing projected at you, you know, but that sensation lasted all of three minutes and then it was gone. And then I had to think about everything else. And, well, you know, I was really careful, but was I careful enough? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that um, that fleeting high has not made me feel like I need to go back and chase it again anytime soon. I had that feeling after watching The Old Guard, which we talked about a couple months ago, I guess. And it was like kind of the one movie I've watched like at home this summer. Like I was like, oh, I've been in a different place for a while. And it felt amazing. And I was in my house, so I didn't have like kind of the anxiety around it. But I know what you mean, Richard, about like the movies as the ability to transport you kind of like physically and mentally and how badly I want that, even if I haven't like thought about that and like high on my hierarchy of needs. Um, I don't know. Maybe you're tempting me to go see Tenet after all. For me, a couple weeks ago, we had a backyard movie night, socially distanced in in this new spot where I'm living. We have like a big rambling backyard. And I've always wanted to do a backyard movie night. I've never done one in my life. I've always wanted to like host one. So we nailed like a sheet to the fence and invited people over to sit like very far away from each other in our backyard. And we watched Spaceballs because that seemed like a fun like summer backyard movie to do. And I will tell you the experience of hearing people that I love, or it could have been strangers, honestly, laughing at the same time as I was, was so strangely powerful and like something I didn't know I was missing so much. That experience, that communal experience of being in a theater and laughing or screaming or crying or whatever at the same time as everyone else in the room. That's like one of the things that we, those of us who advocate going to the theater um, have long said is like the power of the theater. And I just really, it's so potent. And like, yeah, it was like, it was like a drug to me. It was amazing. So like, (laughs) I, yeah. I understand that people wanting to go back into the theater. That's the the vibe. Um, but it's scary. Yeah, it was funny. I mean, like when I was watching New Mutants, which is this movie about 
to be reductive about it, annoying teenagers. <laughs> um, <laughs> and about 30 minutes in, some annoying teenagers came into the theater where I was sitting and they were like, oh shit, there's someone in here. And then they kind of made fun of me for being this lone grown-up <laughs> watching this movie. <laughs> I mean, rightfully so. They were right to make fun of me. Um, like, I am a professional <laughs> I, I, youth. <laughs> in my head, I was gaming that out. I was like, if they approach me, I'm going to say I'm a journalist. <laughs> um, but anyway, they went and sat back at the th- in the back of the theater and, and I, two of them broke off, I think, because they were going to like make out or something but they were yelling to each other across the theater throughout the movie and normally you know in other times i would have been i never would have said anything to them but i i I would be annoyed and sort of like i can't believe they're so disrespectful but like kind of like similar to what you were saying joanna about you know being in a yard and people are laughing at rick moranis it was so warming. It was like, oh, these kids are like having a sort of normal experience and like actually taking advantage of the fact that this theater is empty um, and they have a space outside of their houses to like hang out safely. They were all wearing masks. Um, maybe the ones not not the ones making out, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It just it, it was just like, I, I, you know, it's been easy to forget like what being with other people in a sort of shared experience feels like and how... Um, how nice it is. Yeah. And um, not every movie is going to provoke that, obviously. I mean, these kids were not reacting to anything on screen, really. Um, <laughs> right. But like, I don't know. It's tough because I, I'm not, I wouldn't advocate that anyone goes and, you know, seeks that experience out. And I'm, I realize I'm being a little hypocritical because I just did it myself. But like, yeah, it's a tough thing to, um, you know, kind of reckon with in terms of like, we might not get that experience again for a long time. Do you yeah. want to say a word or two about Tenet? Like, I know you're reviewing it. I know we don't want to spoil it, Joanna, and I have not seen it, may not see it for a long time, but, like, general thumbs up, thumbs down, worth it? Uh, I texted some friends afterward, and after texting the Romeo and Michelle gif of Janine Garofalo with the water sluicing out of her mouth, I don't know if you guys know that gif, <laughs> yeah. sort of a sarcastic reaction, I said to them, and, I, and I, maybe it'll make its way into the review, it, is, it's invigorating, but stupid. <laughs> what's <It's>, your... <laughs> what's your temperature on christopher nolan generally um i like him i like him in in a way that like uh, has been complicated i guess like i i think like a big blind not blind spot but a, a sort of i've had to revisit in my opinion on interstellar where I, I saw that movie i was really excited for it went to a press screening wrote a review that was pretty much a pan and then a year later, I rewatched it, and I was like, "Oh, I think this might be a masterpiece." Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I think his movies don't have an immediate effect on me, but then I think about them more, or I rewatch them, and I kind of see the the richness that other people are getting on on the first viewing. Um, so maybe I'll rewatch Tenet and think better of it. Our brother podcast, Blank Check, they they have you know the the concept is that directors you know at certain points in their career will get this blank check because they've quote-unquote earned it or at least you know a studio thinks they have and i think a lot of people were like oh dunkirk is nolan's blank check movie because it's this you know passion project that's you know very technically particular about world war ii but i think that tenet is his blank check movie in that it's just the stuff that christopher nolan likes which is you know uh stern looking women in nice suit sets and (laughs) planes and boats and big loud music and uh you know timey-wimey uh, stuff timey-wimey stuff and globe trotting um i think a lot of people are, are viewing this as his like bond. response to people thinking he should make a bond movie yeah. um mm. and it's just like it's i mean not to again being reductive it's a boy playing with a lot of his favorite toys <laughs> and um there's a certain fun to that but uh it also it feels messy in a way that i would never ever call a christopher nolan movie messy mm. Mm. 
in that messiness, and I, that's I've, I've been trying to avoid plot. So we're not talking about plot, but all I've heard from people is like kind of hard to follow. May you know multiple viewings may reward you maybe, but in that confusion. Is there opportunity for good performances from the cast? Like, how are how are they sitting in all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are good performances in it. I think there's a, a couple bad performances as well, and I think that a lot of that, at least in in one case, has to do with the writing and, and less with the actor. But yeah, I mean, I think the standout because he gets to have the most fun is Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. um, because he gets to play the rakish, you know, Tom Hardy to. John David Washington's uh, Leo in, in Inception or something. He, he gets to be the sort of fun one. Right. Um, and so the lift is a lot lighter than what Washington has to do. And I think Washington suffers because of that. Um, Kenneth Brown is terrible in it. And his the lines written for him are just awful. <laughs> like it, and it, <laughs> because it's Nolan kind of doing a Bond villain, you know? And, and, and there's, yeah. a silly, there's a silliness there, which was, does not sync up with the seriousness of the rest of the film. So you're saying and, the fact that he nailed, like, the silliest but best line in Dunkirk where he just says home with, like, his eyes missing over it doesn't work <laughs> in a full character? Well, weirdly, he does that in the same outfit in Tenet. Um, <laughs> the hat and everything? Yeah, yeah. yeah yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think D- Elizabeth Debicki, who is, you know, Clemence Posey is in the film briefly. There are a couple other women in smaller roles, but she's the lead woman in the movie um she's good it's just if you saw her in the night manager the jean le carré adaptation that was on amc a few years ago you've seen this role too i mean it's you know she's not getting anything new to do um which is a shame so yeah it's not a movie that you go to for the acting especially because for a huge chunk of the last act of the movie everyone's wearing helmets and you can't really tell who anyone is oh no it's like like dunkirk with the guys in the plane yeah the third act is thrilling because it's just so macro, but it's also incredibly hard to follow. And yeah. if you can't follow that, you sort of don't get the little twist at the end of the movie, which I kind of didn't. Um, I thought about it more and I'm like, oh, I think I know what was going on there. But like, yeah, again, messy. All right. This will be the last I try to hear about Tenet until I see Tenet, but we'll see if I can inoculate myself until then. You guys want to talk about some other time travel that's uh, a lot easier to follow? Please. Bill and Ted are back. Uh, uh, what, a fun, uh, what a fun time at my computer monitor yesterday. I had. <laughs> Richard, have you seen Bill and Ted yet? I believe you haven't, right? I have not. And in okay. fact, I, I haven't seen the original two in <gasps> since I was a kid. So oh, I don't. I hadn't either. Yeah, I, yeah. I rewatched them last week and like wasn't actually sure I had ever seen them. I kind of thought I had, but wasn't clear on it. Like I just like I missed like just how clever the time travel in the first one is where it like creates a time loop and like anyway everyone can talk about Bill and Ted all they want um I just had such a great time watching Bill and Ted 3 it is like deeply moving in a way that like I think the COVID curve that we give to the things that are new and exciting is very real for Bill Bill and Ted like it is I think if it had come out in a normal summer we would have been like okay fine like here's this like little nice thing you get to have but like a movie about a song that can save the world you're just like oh Okay, let's let's save the world through the power yeah. of rock and roll. Uh, I it really really worked on me. If I had seen this in the theater, I would have had a lot more critical things to say about it. But like, at, you know, watching it on my computer yesterday, um, because it it feels pretty cheap. Uh, I think it must have it, been cheap, like, like incredibly yeah. cheap. Yeah, but like 
harmless and fun. And so my threshold was pretty low. And so I was like, well, I don't care that it's cheap. This just feels like, uh, you know, some weird bonus home content that I got. Keanu's having a great, everyone's having a great time. Alex Winter's having a great time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Bridget Lundy Payne, who I had never seen anything, who plays Keanu's daughter, they're incredible in this really interesting impersonation of Keanu as Ted. But their own thing on it. I don't know. It was just like, because Samara Weaving plays the other daughter, and she's been excellent in a number of things, and I've seen her before, and she's like, just kind of fine in this, but I think, I think that Bridget Lindy Payne is like, kind of a revelation, and this, it's just a great comedic performance, because Keanu's mannerisms as Ted are like, it's not what he does in every single movie. It's it's different and and they're doing it they're doing the hair flicks like everything is perfect and Keanu's not quite doing it anymore like it's not I think he is very good in the movie but like his ability to conjure like the true guilelessness of Ted is not quite there anymore but Bridget Lundy Payne like has it but also like the daughters in this movie are kind of smarter than Bill and Ted ever were like they kind of concoct a plan whereas Bill and Ted like kind of stumble into every single thing that happens to them yeah I agree that Bridget Lundy Payne is a revelation Uh, Anthony Kerrigan as the killer robot who kind of self-actualizes and because it takes a while for him to like become a character like unlike Death who's kind of hilarious from the very beginning and Bill and Ted too like the robot takes some time but he's wonderful um it's kind of like i'm not sure i'd totally follow it all the time travel and hopping around that happens in it but i didn't really care right it's it's uh you know it's the musical version of bill and ted right so instead of uh, collecting random historical figures we're collecting musicians which is really fun there's like basically an a a b and kind of a c plot they handle the absence of some deceased cast members really beautifully and it's just like I just I really I I, like what harmless wonderful fun basically also like I I think it was interesting watching people rewatch the old movies on kind of on Twitter last week and being like Bill and Ted are interesting characters and that they aren't really toxic masculinity but there are like some dumb jokes been made in the 80s and 90s versions that like wouldn't pass muster today and I think the new version goes a long way to like keeping the the essential goodness of Bill and Ted as guys who just like kind of want to hang out and love each other and like love their wives and their daughters but also clear room for the daughters to be major characters. And, like, as they go collect historical figures, like, there's one white guy in the lineup. Like, there's all these moves toward more inclusivity in the story that is really universal, even though it's always been about white guys. And I and I like that Bill and Ted kind of go so willingly into the present day and how well that works. And it doesn't feel, um, to my eyes and ears anyway, like super pandering or, no. you know, condescending or like, oh, the the daughters are like, they're good too. You're like, no, it's just like everyone's just a harmless, kind of dumb sometimes <laughs> having a good time. Yeah. Are Bill and Ted like our, our like blueprint himbos? Like, is that oh boy. who they are? They're not quite woke enough. Uh, you know, they say like medieval babes or whatever, but like. Are, him- are himbos woke? <laughs> I didn't know that that was a, a yeah, requisite. Himbos have to be like a little woke, I think, on top of. I think I was know. on vacation the week that like himbo discourse took over <laughs> Twitter and I, I never totally caught up. So I'm going to defer to you. I think. Well, the- as a himbo, yeah. I, can, I think I should. Yeah, thank you, Richard. <laughs> yeah. I think that the new definition of himbo, because like I remember himbo from like the 90s, but I think the new definition of himbo is that which is like, because it was originally like a uh, male bimbo, um, you know, so like a handsome, dumb dude. But I think now on top of that, it's like handsome, dumb, but like 
just aggressively harmless and positive and supportive of like mm-hmm. other people, non toxic. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Channing anyway. Tatum writing a children's book about unicorns. Perfect. Um, being Perfect. the ultimate himbo act of goodness. Love it. Love it. Love to see it. Love to hear it. But yeah, I mean, Keanu, like, of the three things I've seen, well, probably not three things because I've seen some John Wick movies, but like, of the three things I've seen at home, there was like the Keanu Winona Ryder wedding movie, which I really didn't like. There was the Ali Wong movie, which he was, like, fine in, but I just thought was, like, kind of fine. This is, like, the most I've enjoyed, like, my VOD Keanu experience in the, oh. in, the, in the last few years. I thought it was really great. So, yeah. All right. One more uh, movie that was supposed to be in theaters but is now on your televisions. Uh, Mulan is coming out. Actually, the crazy thing about Mulan is that we know a bunch of people who saw it. Actually, Joanna, were you at the Mulan premiere in L.A.? Or is that one you... Okay, so... But plenty of people we know were. Because it premiered, like, March 9th or something. Like, the week that the world changed. And by the end of the week, I was like, oh, no one will ever see this movie. Um, but now it's coming to Disney Plus uh, for 30 bucks, which is, like, 10 more dollars than I paid to rent Bill & Ted. Um, we've, we've all gotten a chance to see it. It's a perfectly lovely movie. Like there's there's been a lot of discussion of it again for months because all these people saw it. Um, I'm really intrigued to see how many people actually wind up watching it on Disney Plus. Um, I also don't have a lot of attachment to the original, so I'm not sure like what that discourse is going to be. But I guess I am grateful that something big and splashy and well filmed is going to be beamed into televisions. Where do you guys land on it? Well, I mean, I again, I think I think Katie, you and I just were a little old um, when the original movie came out. Yeah. Um, like we were not being directly marketed to for that movie, you know. I think I saw it in theaters, but yeah. So I don't have the connection, but I know the songs, you know, at least some of them. The Christina Aguilera one. Make that a man one, out and then of you. I'll make a man out of you. Yeah, those yeah. are the two I know. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter because they're not in this one. This one <laughs> is this deadly serious action movie. Um, and I really didn't like it. I, th- I think it's a total missed opportunity. I think there's no magic to it. There's no awe to it. I think it's just kind of, it doesn't feel like it's a Disney thing or any special kind of property. It just feels like any other action movie, hmm. um, which is a bummer because it had potential to be something interesting. And instead, it's not, it's not bad. It's just sort of there. And I just don't know if people are going to be thrilled about spending $30 on top of the... Um, their Disney Plus subscription fee. I, yeah. So I'm, it's funny because I'm even older than you guys are, but I, like, I feel like I saw Mulan um, a couple times when it came out and I definitely like know every word of Make a Man Out of You. Um, but it's it was a tricky thing that they did because uh, Mulan, the animated uh, film, is like, it's a comedy, mus- a musical comedy about war. And it only sure. works because of like, Eddie Murphy's dragon character, which now in 2020 feels like really cringy, but at the time, you know, like this is his like pre Donkey Shrek, I think, right? This is like proto yeah. Shrek Donkey. It's the same thing though, and it's funny. And then the music's pretty good. And so you take both of those things away, you take the humor away. Other than, like, one slapstick sequence at the beginning, you take the humor away and you take the music away. And then, yeah, you have this, like, really deadly serious thing, which could be cool. And there there are some ads that I really like, additions that I really like. Like, they added this witch character and they added this, like, kind of interesting conversation between that character and Mulan. Not just one conversation, but, like, throughout the movie, a conversation about, like... 
women struggling to be acknowledged in their power and stuff like that and what what are the ways you can achieve that and like I actually liked that addition to the film but it's tough with something like Mulan because it doesn't it doesn't feel like it hangs together for me it feels mm-hmm. like a loose assemblage of scenes and I didn't it didn't feel like one character's journey through something yeah. um so that was tough. Um, I thought the fight scenes were really incredible. There's like a lot of like wire work and martial arts work, and I thought it looked really cool. But like it doesn't have the meat on the bones to like hold that up to make it feel like a complete exciting experience. Yeah. Well, now we get to bring back uh, something that we did last summer and I enjoyed immensely. Uh, the Little Goldman Book Club, uh, kind of. We are talking about I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is a book uh, written by Ian Reid and also a new movie directed and written by Charlie Kaufman. Um, we're going to talk about the two together. And I think with this particular project, maybe you kind of have to because the book is in some ways a very close template for the movie and in some ways is wildly different. Uh, and we should say from the start, we're going to spoil both of them. Um, they have remarkably different endings but also kind of the same endings. It's very confusing. So maybe let's start by talking about the book, um, which we have all read. I didn't really know anything about it, um, and it becomes clear kind of quickly that it's a, like a little bit of a horror novel. It kind of deliberately wants you to make wants to make you uncomfortable from the very start because the narrator is this girl who's been dating a guy for not very long and agrees to drive with him out to visit his parents for the evening through a snowstorm in kind of a very creepy old farmhouse. And it's got lots of spooky tropes like the basement that's mysteriously locked, and then you know lots of bad decisions being made about whether to drive in a snowstorm and where to stop and how to whether or not to get out of the car. Um, and it kind of ratchets up the tension from there. Um, I don't know if I'm specifically unable to handle discomfort at this point in my life, but I found it almost physically painful reading this book. And I think that's a credit to the writing that like it was capable of making me like that. But I got through this book and wanted to like run as far away as possible from it um, and then had to watch a whole movie about it. Did, did you guys actually enjoy it a little bit more than I did? Well, I came at it from a very different angle because I watched the movie first. Mm. I, I saw the movie like a while, like, I don't know, a month ago, maybe when it was made available to me on Netflix. And then I knew I had to read the book for this podcast. And and so I kept, you know, I, I really tried to like read the book as its own thing. And even though like the character Jake is described a very particular way in the book, Jesse Plemons just kept like wandering into my <laughs> my yeah. head, you know, yeah. and, and various other things. So I, I wasn't as um, as immersed in it, Katie, as you were in terms of like discomfort and everything, because mm-hmm. I was reading it as like a kind of supplemental text in a way, um, yeah. and not like its own experience. So I kind of wish that I'd done the reverse, but um, that was just how it played out. Yeah, and not to be insufferable, but I'm really glad I did the reverse because, and I'm glad that I heard from Katie that she did not enjoy the book so that I had, like, my (laughs) expectations were lowered. But I did have, I did have a really uh, strong sense of discomfort reading it. I was really uncomfortable reading it. As I was reading it, I was like, either she's mentally unwell or he's mentally unwell. And then I was like, ah, they're both and all the same mentally unwell. Okay, that's what I'm reading. But, like, if I hadn't read the book... I think I would have been really annoyed by the movie because despite my fondness for Charlie Kaufman, like, it is sort of almost perversely intentionally, like, incomprehensible in places, I think. But when you have the book as a supplemental material, I felt the movie was really clear knowing what I know of the book, which is, I mean, we're going to spoil this, right? I already said they're both mentally unwell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, spoilers. Spoilers a hoe. The premise is... 
This is all taking place in the mind of an older man who is a janitor who is thinking of killing himself. So I'm thinking of ending things as two meanings. Uh, you think it's this girl thinking of breaking up with this guy, but really it's this older man thinking of killing himself. And as he's thinking of killing himself, he is envisioning a scenario of a younger him who like made it out of his small town and made it to the city and actually had the guts to talk to this girl that he saw at like a trivia night and get her phone number. And what if she were his girlfriend? And what if he took her home? And what if she met his parents? And could that have like alter the course of his life in a way that he didn't feel suicidal. And so the book is so tricky because you're inside the head of this woman and finally you realize you're actually inside the head of this older man who's an older version of the Jesse Plemons character, the young man that she's going home uh, to meet his parents. Knowing that going into the moving, knowing that this is like a John Cusack identity situation, then I was able to keep a grasp on what what I was watching. And the ending in particular where Kaufman takes a lot of liberties in terms of ejecting Oklahoma in a way that I think is actually really brilliant into the ending of the movie, I still feel like I understood the ending because I, I know what happens in the book, which I think is pretty like clear cut in the book and really I feel vague less clear in the movie. That the, yeah, that the movie is that though. Like, I don't know. Are we supposed to think that the Jesse Plemons character and the janitor character who both exist in the movie, are they supposed to be one and the same in the movie? I believe so. Uh, if you, if you go in knowing that, uh, Plemons' character says a bunch of things about like being at the high school, seeing the kids every right. day over yeah. and over, all this sort of stuff that like, if you go in knowing and looking for it, it's in there. What's important to me about the movie and what I think makes me like the movie better than the book is it doesn't feel as important. Like the fact that, I mean, it doesn't end with a suicide or at least not a literal suicide in the movie that you're seeing something different. You kind of go into this fantastical version of Oklahoma that it becomes more about the ideas of like this lonely man and how you connect to the world rather than like I have lured this girl into a fake high school to fake kill herself. I think the movie has more interesting ideas to present there than what, to me, reading the book kind of felt like the rug being pulled up, being like, ah-ha-ha, she hasn't been real this whole time, which is one of the reasons I wanted to run away from it. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a gimmick to the book that I think does no service to, I think, what is actually some pretty elegant writing throughout the book. Yeah. Um, and some really interesting, like, noodling of philosophical, you know, ideas about life and existence and consciousness and all these things, um, which I think is partly what... I would imagine appeal to Kaufman, you know, who can get pretty like deep and existential when uh, when he wants. I'm thinking particularly of Synecdoche, New York, yeah. um, his first directorial uh, feature. And yet, I think that it's weird comparing the book and the movie because, to my mind, Kaufman is almost making fun of the book in the adaptation. Uh huh. I think he's kind of belittling what Ian Reid was getting at, which I think that book is really about you know, suicidal ideation and um, loneliness, loneliness and all that. And I think that Kaufman's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, maybe it's more about these relationships and this, or this particular relationship. And and then he knows he has to, if it's going to be a proper adaptation, get to this sort of crazy stuff at the end, but does it with a sort of whimsical, like, oh yeah, here's all this wacky stuff kind of way. So I, I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm just being precious bec- about it because like, I'm a, a writer too, and I, you know, whatever. But like, I, it just feels like a kind of a betrayal of an adaptation, and it feels a little mean. It feels a little mm. sneering. That's so um, interesting. That wasn't my I just, yeah. yeah. That wasn't my take at all. But but like, I want to think about that uh, interpretation of it. I thought the inclusion of Oklahoma was so brilliant, not just because like everyone's doing Oklahoma these days, but like. I was thinking about. It, I was like, okay, so why? I mean, so we're in the we're in the high school. 
I like audibly gasped when they decided to do like the full dream ballet from oh my Oklahoma. God. Oh I was, my god! Like, I, was, I was like so on the fence about the movie, and when it started, I was like sold. <laughs> yeah, done. yeah. Dream ballet. <laughs> the movie should have a dream ballet. <laughs> Great, loved it. Then they do like a quasi staging of Oklahoma at the end, where Jesse Plemons in old age makeup uh, sings this song that Judd sings in the stage production, but not in the film. So people who love the film might not be aware that this is a Judd song, but like. I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, so what's the fascination with Oklahoma here? I mean, there are parallels to be drawn of this Jake character and how he's always the Judd, never the Curly, wants to be the Curly, is imagining himself as the Curly, but is always the Judd or whatever. And then I was thinking about Judd Fry and like poor Judd and how that is like maybe one of the biggest Western pop cultural artifacts we have that's about suicide you know what I mean like that's what that song is about and that's not the mm-hmm. song that he sings there but that's it takes place right after that song in the play so just thinking about the idea of like loneliness and suicide and how that's filtered through Oklahoma and so then to me that didn't seem as him mocking like the suicidal themes of the movie but like really just sort of like plussing it expanding it through a you know a wider a pop cultural lens that was my take on on the ending there. Yeah, I guess I wish he'd just been a little bit less, like, ta-da and, like, esoteric about it, you know? Uh, like, not that it has to be accessible, but it just feels so inscrutable yeah. that... Oh, yeah. Uh, you're, it's kind of, like, annoying. It yeah. feels intentionally inscrutable. Like, I am listening to this now... Uh, you will be able to read like an explainer post that I wrote about this movie in like on Friday on VF.com. That's not something we normally do for like independent like art house films or whatever, but you know, th- this movie requires it. And I think the book, like, if I hadn't read the book, I think I would have hated this film. And because I read the book, I think I I loved this film. Hmm. And and that's, you know, I don't know. There were these twin poles in the adaptation, um, kind of, you know, the theme about, like, loneliness and, like, trying to connect in a romantic relationship is very much in the book. But then uh, most of the stuff in the house with Tony Collette and David Thewlis, I don't think is in the book from what I could tell. Like, they're no. kind of, like, aging from scene to scene. And, like, you see them, like, wandering around the house. And, you know, there's all these parts with the girl played by Jesse Buckley, who's, we should talk about her. She's amazing in it. Um kind of losing her identity and I think that stuff is really poignant about your parents and watching them age and like you know having nostalgia for your youth but and like kind of being in your parents house and feeling all those things happening at once but it doesn't connect for me to any of the rest of the movie like it doesn't have anything to do with the Oklahoma stuff to me and I found it like I found it powerful but when it left that farmhouse like it, it felt like it was kind of abandoned um, and that felt like the stronger part to me as well. I think part of that disconnect, because I, I, I agree with you, Katie, and I think it's a lot more subtly threaded through in the book, um, the, the 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 home scene, is that Tony Collette and David Thewlis are both terrible in the movie, and they've been directed terribly, and <laughs> oh, no. they're overacting. It's like the two of the worst performances I've seen this year. I hate them. I mean, in it. overacting <laughs> in the context of this movie is tough. Like, aren't they supposed it, to be doing like macabre, sort of ghoulish? It's hammy. so hammy. It's but it's it's it doesn't it doesn't work. And I don't. I think they're both great actors. Yeah. Um. I think they were directed badly. And I think that that um. I really just dislike this movie. And uh. I I, I I'm sorry if it's like coming out too effusively. But like I just I think it's so cartoonish. And so any meaning is just completely bounces off of it because it's just there's there's it there's nothing for it to stick to. It's just this big silliness and and that's part of what i feel like is kind of snide about the movie is that it's just like ah, eh, none of it really matters who cares just be what you know mm. um and i just don't think that that is 
true to the spirit of the book, which is about this, you know, phenomenon you read about, which is like older men dying these deaths of despair, you know, who are lonely. I, I don't know. It just, it just, it's something about the, the, the sort of way that he flattens out some of the texture of the book really bothers me. It's interesting because I sort of interpreted it as like, if he's thinking of ending things, if he's thinking of killing himself, uh, if he does indeed kill himself at the end of the movie, which I th- I think he does, mostly because he does in the book, then maybe it's his like, because my interpretation is like, rather than like leave and go to the city or whatever, this guy, I mean, I guess he went to the city at some point because he met her at Trivia Night, maybe. But like, this guy was like stuck in his parents' house for his entire life as the janitor at his high school and watched them die. And so it's just this sort of like, in the horror movie way that she, you know, the girl, the female character feels trapped in this house and wants to get back to the city and wants to get back to the city and wants to get back to the city, but is like looping down those stairs and all this sort of stuff like that. Like that's just reflective of him being trapped, taking care of his parents as they like decay and die. And that creeping horror I felt reading it in the book and I just felt the same way from their performances. I, I, I just disagree. I like the way they were directed. I think it's so scary and uh, and sort of rightfully so. But like not completely devoid of being human at the same time. You just like you're confused and you're frustrated as confused and frustrated as this woman is, um, which I think is interesting. My actually favorite one of my favorite sections of the movie, uh, because like once you know that it's all taking place inside his head, then you understand her as a construct of all these things that he's read at some point in his life. So my favorite point moment, which is not in the book, but is in the film, is when you see in his room that he has a, a, a Pauline Kale book. And so she, the female character at one point, like basically turns into Pauline Kale, like starts smoking out of nowhere and like deconstructing a woman under the influence. And I just like love, it's just like, I love loved that section because it's just sort of like he's he keeps molding this dream girl into being like okay what if she had been like this would that have been right what if she had been like this what if that have been right okay so what if she's Pauline Kale would that have been right we could have talked about film and we could have discussed it you know discussed film together and like it's just I don't know it's fascinating it's weird it's unsettling and uncomfortable in a way well, here's what I'll say. When I finished reading the book, I was like, God, do I have to read this again now, knowing like what I know? Well, am I going to have to reread this? I don't want to. But then I got to go watch the movie, which is like kind of like rereading the book. And I was like, oh, now I can like watch this feeling like I have my feet firmly on the ground in terms of what's mm-hmm. happening and um, and then better appreciate sort of the trail they leave along the way. Does that make sense? I don't know. I, I think you're completely right about you know, knowing that this is all happening inside her head, knowing that she's a construct. But the more I think about her being a construct character and not a real person, the more it kind of drives me crazy again. Like, I just, I hate the idea that the book has her be made up. And I hate that, I think in the movie, because she's played by Jessie Buckley, who's this wonderful actress, because she's like there physically in front of you, like she feels more like a real person. But when you dig down and you're like, oh yeah, she's just like his dream girl construction. It makes me mad again because I don't want this to be a movie that's about like this like one guy and his imagination. I want it to like have humanity and people within it. And I think there are moments with Tony Collette and David Thewlis in that house where you see, like, what the human version of the story is and then it kind of, like, you know, spins off again. Um, I just, I, I don't, the little interpretation of it, I think, is right, but it makes me angry at the movie again. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's the root of my frustration is that, like, it's still gimmicky in the book, but in the end, you feel that it's at least served some thematic purpose that this is all in someone's head 
Whereas in the movie, I feel like it just turns it into more of a, you know, kind of middle finger to the audience you know it, it just mm-hmm. feels it just it doesn't it it i think it, it it heightens the frustrating synthetic quality of the story rather than like you know manifesting it on film in a way that feels uh rich or worth it and not like it's just charlie kaufman once again noodling about his own peccadilloes and issues with women which are myriad <laughs> The well, the ones, the most self-aware part of that that I liked was the part where she's looping down the stairs, and she's mm-hmm. like, "Am I? It feels like I'm just here to support him, and you know, like the way she's talking about it, like, and I just exist to support him, and I reflect glory on him, and I'm something to be admired because I am smart and I am pretty and stuff like that. But that makes him that reflects better on him. Like all of that could sound like something a woman might think." her boyfriend thinks of her, but then, like, there's the added layer of the fact that, like, she's just something that he's constructed to make himself feel better. Um, so that, at least, to me, felt self-aware of the way, of the, of the like, toxic implications of creating, like, a dream girlfriend uh, to reflect glory back on you. And is is this the thing that would have changed your life, bringing home a, a, a girl who was, you know, smart and pretty and nice um, the way that this girl is? And the way in which her identities keep shifting, the way in which her name keeps shifting, the way in which she's played by a different actress for a split second, like, I just think that that's interesting in the way that, like, we all sort of think about, or maybe this is um, unique to this particular character, but, like, that we think about our partners reflecting glory on us or saving us in some way, you know? But then, like, not that it's fair to be like, well, why can't you make something as good as your masterpiece? But that just makes you think about Eternal Sunshine yeah. and the way that you see the way they think about each other. And it's like, okay, well, oh, it's, he made that. It's much better in Eternal Sunshine. Like, much better. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I just, I guess I'm, and it's, it's unfair of me because he can make what he wants. But, like, I'm just a little bummed out that this is still what Charlie Kaufman is, like, hung up on. Mm. <laughs> it's like, the girl didn't talk to you 30 years ago, man. Like, just grow up. Like, it's just, it feels so like a regression mm. of of some of really interesting things that he got at in Synecdoche and Annalisa, his last um, film that he made. And it's just like, it, and, and then he kind of mangled, I think, an interesting book in the process and, and took that down with him. And I don't know, I just, I, maybe I need to rewatch it a third time and try, and try to <laughs> glean something out of it. But right now, I just feel sort of like, what was the point? I thought that about the obsession with aging, like, and all the stuff in the house, because Synecdoche in New York is so much about this, like, terror of getting old and decrepit and, like, watching the world around you collapse and, like, like kind of being back in there in the farmhouse. I was like, oh, man, he made Synecdoche 12 years ago, and now he's older and he's still, like, <laughs> afraid of aging. I mean, we all are. Like, it's not like something he, like we're gonna, we're all going to get over, but, uh, like, I was kind of, like, bummed on his back. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's almost body horror. I mean, like, the, mm-hmm. the, the maggoty pig thing, which is... Oh, is in the book. In the book. But, like, the animated Maggie Pig at the end is not in the book. And I was like, the only thing I can't fully get a grasp on is the, like, ice cream shop scene, which is a Dairy Queen in the book and something far creepier with a a clown in the movie. And it's like, who is that girl... Is that Tulsi Town, like like Tulsi Gabbard? Yeah, (laughs) so weird, so thrown off by that. But, like, who is that girl with the rash in her arms? Is she him? Like, who is she? 
What is that? I don't know. You're going to figure this out by the time you write your All explainer right, that's, post. That's, I'll have to rewatch and try to figure it out. Um, speaking of tiny details, though, can we talk about the Robert Zemeckis dig that's just thrown <laughs> in the middle of this movie? Sorry, oh, God, I forgot about that. Yeah. It's kind of wild, though, because has Robert Zemeckis ever made a movie like that, though? Like, that's a very specific kind of, like, rom-com in which a man's toxic behavior is kind of, like, celebrated as a romantic gesture. I can't, I mean, Forrest Gump, kind of? I don't know. I couldn't think of, like, if there's a specific thing Robert Zemeckis has done that makes him deserve that, or if Charlie I mean, I would just argue, doesn't like Robert Zemeckis. I would argue that Tom Hanks uh, objectifies Wilson pretty much a lot. In yeah, that's story. true. I know. I know. Wilson really <laughs> yeah, deserved better than yeah. that. Um, no, that and again, it's night. That's not. That's like I don't know. This movie's mean, <laughs> and like that can be okay, of course. But like, it's just like why? Like what? You know, uh, I'm not like going to bat for Bobby Z, but um, I'm, I like his movies, but some of them anyway. But like, I don't know. It's just like, and that's so not in the book. The book is so not no. that tone, and it's not like making snarky cultural references. It's not. You know, it's much more interior, and that's why I think it it, it works. Um, but you can't but, make yeah. something that interior into a film. You know what I mean? Then don't try and let someone else try. Don't Fair. ruin the thing. Fair. <laughs> make I something else. Like ruin. Okay, fine. Uh. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I think you're right that the Zemeckis thing is mean, and I think you're right that the book is more subtly interior. But I was just so frustrated reading the book, and I like maybe if I had done the reverse and watched the movie and then read the book, it would have been like the relief. I felt relief from the movie from my frustration from the book, and maybe if I had done the reverse, mm-hmm. I would have felt relief from the book with my frustrations with the movie. So um, maybe it depends a lot on the order you uh, consume. Yeah, I mean the movie ending on a scene from Oklahoma, and then like an entire audience of teenagers in old age makeup, which is really a poignant sight. Like you know, regardless of what's come before it, um, I liked better than the violent ending of the book. That's uh, that's uh, speaks to I know. me. That's like the most I was, predictable thing you can imagine for me. I was really worried once they get to the high school. It is like a sl- I like kind of sped read the ending of the book because I was like, oh mm-hmm. my god, get if you're gonna kill her, kill her. I don't like yeah. uh, whatever. And then it was something else. But like, um, I the fact that they sidestepped the slasher vibe and went for like now it's musical theater time. I was pretty into yeah. so. Um, can we get a little more cynical for a second and talk about Jesse Buckley and whether or not. Uh, either of you think that this is going to be like a star making role or at least a, a continuation of her star rise that started, I think, with with Wild Rose? I would have to assume it's a continuation. I think anyone who sees this is going to notice her um, if they haven't noticed her previously. Like, I was going to ask also the cynical question about like what we think this, how we think this could fit into the weird Oscar season sure, that we found yeah. ourselves in. I mean, this seems like the definite, you know, if the Oscars didn't go for Synecdoche in New York, it's hard to imagine them going for this. Um, but Jesse Buckley, I think, can be incredibly proud of what she does here. And, you know, she has big things coming on the way already, I think, but I think this will only lead to more. You don't think that old voters who vote liked Green Book are gonna like this? <laughs> what? I mean, they voted for Parasite. Like, let's, we gotta give them movies. some. Credit. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because uh, Jesse Buckley is Scottish, right? She's Scottish. Her American accent is pretty solid. It's like, oh, she's Irish. Scottish. Oh, she's Irish. Okay, but it's funny because she does like kind not a similar accent because it's much more Fargo and Fargo, but she's in Fargo season four, pretty right. significantly doing like a really strong Midwestern accent. That was supposed to come out earlier this year, but the fact that both of these are coming out like kind of closest to each other, I think will create something of a Jesse Buckley moment, which she deserves. Wild Rose is so good. She was good in Chernobyl as well. That's why I was so excited for this movie. Back when I like first heard about it, I was like, Charlie Kaufman, my two favorite Jessies, 
uh, this is going to be great. And it's not, <laughs> it's not at all what I thought it was going to be. And I don't like it as much as like the dream version in my head. But like, I do like it. And I do think that like, she, you know, if, if folks didn't see Wild Rose, that they're in for a treat with her here. Yeah. I mean, you guys want to put your ships down? Does a Best Actress campaign for Jesse Buckley go anywhere? I think people could push that narrative, sure. Yeah. Well, yes, I think she's undermined by the end of the movie, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, it gets taken away from her. Yes. Um, well, kind of on purpose, but... What's the field that you see right now for Best Actress? Oh, Lord. What a great question. I mean, Elizabeth Moss in Shirley is amazing. Um, I feel like every year we've got an Elizabeth Moss performance that's, like, so tiny that the Oscars will never notice it. But we want them to anyway. Um, so why not? I mean, I, I've also heard people talking about her in The Invisible Woman, which, like, that's that movie is, like, so from the before times. It's hard to imagine it going anywhere. But who knows? What else do you guys see? I don't even... I can't even... It's ho- It's so hard to wrap your head around... I mean, isn't the isn't everyone? I mean, not everyone. Like two gay guys I talked to have been like, <laughs> <laughs> clearly, Kate Winslet's going to win for Ammonite. Like mm. she already has like the big Hollywood Reporter profile. There's no one else going to be who's going to be in contention because everything. I mean, granted, like movies that come out in January and February are going to be considered. So it maybe is moot to talk about any of this. But like, I don't know. I don't know. The, the Winslet thing felt big, but you know, it's going to be such a strange year that I could see a strange. Well, not a strange performance, but a performance in a strange movie like Jesse Buckley's in this, like um, somehow sneaking its way in. I think the problem is you have to get people to watch it and stick with it. I don't, um, yeah, I don't think this. And it's so alienating, pretty much right from the jump. That this reminds I don't know. me of Mother, which like has a, mm. I think, a good Jennifer Lawrence performance at the center of it, but it is a frustrating, alienating movie. You know what yeah. I mean? That I that I think people who really like glommed onto it, glommed onto it, and like for the most part, people didn't. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. According to Gold Derby, leading contenders are, you know, theoretically, are uh, Amy Adams, Hillbilly Elegy, mm-hmm. Jesse Buckley, uh, Olivia Coleman in The Father, uh, sure. Viola Davis in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, mm-hmm. uh, Jennifer Hudson in Respect, Sophia Loren in The Life Ahead, which I don't know enough about, Frances McDormand, Nomadland, Michelle Pfeiffer in French Exit, and Rachel Zegler in West Side Story. So, sure. You know. Well, we'll actually have an idea about at least a few of those uh, in the next kind of six to yeah, that's eight true. weeks. Yeah. Well, next week we're talking about Toronto and like, and you get a, a couple of titles popping up there. French Exit, I believe, is going to be at New York Film Festival. Yeah. And we, and like, it's several of these are Netflix titles, yeah. um, which is, you know, as is, I'm thinking of ending things. I mean, if you think of the competition for I'm thinking of ending things, really, is that Netflix has a bunch of other like more clearly awards likely contenders that are coming. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in particular, like Viola Davis, obviously is a huge star and it's got a performance from Chadwick Boseman, which I think is something to think about as we get into our um, kind of more forward-looking award season. So if Netflix has too much on its plate, you can imagine I'm thinking of any things, which is going to be a tough sell anyway, being, being a harder one to get out there. And I promise, you know, I know this is the first really, you know, serious fall movie that we're talking about uh, this year. And I promise I'll like more of them. It's okay. Going I just want to say, it's okay to not like this movie. All of your criticisms sound valid to me. I just perversely found myself liking it. I think so. You know, uh, I'm thinking think, of enjoying things. <laughs> 
That does it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Find us at VanityFair.com, where Richard's writing about New Mutants and Tenet, and Joanna is back to explain I'm Thinking of Ending Things to you, and there's so many other great things to read. Um, next week, we'll be back talking about the Toronto Film Festival, which is kicking off uh, virtually uh, in a form that we don't fully even understand yet. It's going to be really fascinating to be part of. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich, and Joanna? Joe wrote this. And Richard. Uh, Rylaws. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best title for our spinoff podcast goes to Joanna Robinson. Blueprint Himbos? 